advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod and welcome. It is Monday. It is the last Monday in March, which means it's the last Monday before we get to April. And we've got some big things happening around here in April, of course, not the least of which is that moving day into our new studio is April 1st. On Friday, we're going to start the move-in process. So it's going to be really exciting. You're still going to see this format in the shows because we're not going to have, we start the move-in on Monday. It's not going to be done yet. We hope by the, the second Monday in April that we might be able to do our first live show, fingers crossed. So um, we'll see. It's going to take a little while to get the studio up and running, but it'll all be in Traven's capable, capable hands. Thank goodness it's not in my hands I because I would run for the hills. So excited to be here with you this morning. We've got a tremendous guest. When I talk about on this show, we try to bring you experts. And this is this is one of my favorites. Um, honestly, Dr. Jed Baker is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. He, he, You know what he's done? He's authored all the books that you want from autism. Uh, about the, the, you know, it's all the things that you guys ask about the most. So you, you really need to check out his author page. Uh, it's Dr. Jed Baker, B-A-K-E-R um, is his name, but get this, social skills training for children and adolescents with Asperger's syndrome and social communication prob problems, ding, uh, preparing for life, the complete handbook for the transition to adult to, to adulthood for those with autism and Asperger's sy sy syndrome, I can't talk today, ding, another, the social skills picture book, the social skills picture book for high school and beyond. How about no more meltdowns? Yeah, no more meltdowns, subtitled positive strategies for managing and preventing out of control behavior. Mm -hmm. No more uh, victims, protecting those with autism from cyberbullying, internet predators and scams. Ding, we want that one, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And a book that I talk about all the time and recommend all the time, uh, including I recommended this in my book, which is coming out, uh, in July, Overcoming Anxiety in Children and Teens. I think the definitive book that's out there. And uh, last but not least, School Shadow Guidelines. Hello. Uh, yes. Uh, and he is someone who is absolutely amazing. I love, you know, his work in the social skills arena is unparalleled, but also I... I love what he has to say about anxiety. We're going to talk about all that with him. That's coming up in just a few minutes. So get your questions ready. That's all I can say for you. Uh, also, uh, this week is, is going to be super duper fun. So I'll tell you more about that later because I don't want to waste more time. I do want to invite you if you're watching us. We're live right now. I can see that people have already written in in the chat. Liliana, good morning from Riverside. So glad that you're here. Susie, um, good morning. So uh, welcome that uh, we're so glad to have you guys here. And if you guys want to write in, you can write in, tell us where you're watching from or what you got going on. We love to hear from you guys. We're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other places. And Traven is showing you. Desiree, good evening from Sri Lanka. 
Oh, well, that that gets to be the most glamorous for today. Uh, try to beat that, you guys. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. Love to know where you're watching from. It's really a particular excitement. But you can also write in and ask questions. We are live in about a dozen different sites Traven is showing you. And we will podcast later on. The podcast will be available wherever you get your your podcast. It's a free download. So we really love that. We are the number one rated autism podcast worldwide for the second year in a row. Kind of love that. Gareth, so wonderful to have you here. Gareth says, happy start to World Autism Week. Uh, the week starts today. We are beautiful people with love and many talents. Hope we are all celebrating our love and everything that is good. Thank you from the UK. Thank you, Gareth. So thrilled to have you here with us today. Uh, we're also going to, we're going to get into the jargon in just a second. I got a couple of things I want to say though, cause you guys, you know, I was all hepped up to watch the Oscars last night and it did not really go, uh, I think how anybody really wanted it to go. And I'm not going to belabor a whole lot of things, but I do want to say that, that one of the most heartbreaking things for me last night, by the way, we're celebrating that Coda won best picture. This is a huge ginormous step forward in people who are differently abled getting to represent themselves authentically on film. Can everybody just, can we get an amen for that, right? What an amazing, amazing coup last night. And and can I also brag for a second and say that with only one exception, all the films that I felt really strongly should um, deserved awards for the things that they were up for, got them. The only thing that I disagreed very strongly, very strongly with is the, you know, the drive my car thing. Um, should not have won Best Foreign Film. I feel like that that was an advertising campaign. If you're into watching foreign films as I am, you know, I would tell you if you're going to watch Drive My Car, I keep telling everyone, pack a snack because it's three hours long. Um, and and I love Chekhov. And I felt it was, it was two and a half hours too long. And I love Chekhov. I would have rather gone to see a production of Uncle Vanya. But, but there are some redeeming factors in it but not enough to warrant a, uh, an Academy Award or even a nomination for Best Picture, period. But the worst person in the world, I thought, was a tour de force. So if you want to watch the film, the foreign film, do yourself a favor, go watch The Worst Person in the World. Um, but also the thing that was really heartbreaking to me last night was that our dear beloved Ed Asner that we've had on the show that I consider to be a friend and I certainly consider his family to be part of my family. Um, we lost Ed in the last year and that's hard enough, you know? Um, but I, I was shocked, dismayed and disheartened, sick to my stomach that the Academy decided not to include him in the in memoriam, the in memoriam, which I felt was so poorly, poorly done. And, um, and that they decided not, not to include him at all. And, um, and many people have said many things and a couple of people are like, well, wasn't he more of a television actor? You're, you know, that's ignorance on your part. Um, he was very much a film actor and I can start naming films that you would be aware of. Um, but I think it's, you know, first of all, we, you've all seen Elf and Up. He is the definitive Santa Claus and Up won best animated feature and he is the lead of that how can you how can you forget that um but ed was you know is everybody aware of the fact that he did two movies with elvis and two movies with um sydney poitier 
and El Dorado. Like these are major films, you guys. How they could overlook and and I and I feel like it was deliberate. And I'm going to say that here that Ed was a very controversial person in the uh, in the world of entertainment. He was the president of SAG for multiple years, during which he called for strikes. He said things that were not popular. This is a man who had the number one rated television show, and they canceled the show while it was number one because of the fact that he was speaking out politically. And then to leave him out of the in memoriam, just shame on you. Shame on you, Academy. That is just the worst horrible behavior. Um, horrifying to me. Absolutely horrifying. I, I have no words. And, you know, so there we go. Ha put to on the Academy for having left him out. That's what I want to say about that. I And I know everyone is talking about um, the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. I, I, I will say this. I just, I was horrified by the whole thing, whole thing. I, you know, I do not condone making fun of jokes of things that people have um, that are outside of their control, right? I, don't, I didn't appreciate the joke. I didn't think the joke was funny. Uh, but I'm a former stand-up comedian, and sometimes you don't get it right, right? I also appreciate that when someone you love is hurt by something that is something is said that it, you know, I think I think we can all relate um, that it is maddening, right? And that that sometimes you cannot take more of it, right? But if every autism parent who has ever had their child made fun of publicly for their disability got up and smacked people sideways, I'll tell you right now what would happen. We would be in handcuffs. CPS would take our children away. This is not appropriate behavior. Um, I, I think that Will Smith needs some help. And I hope that uh, both Chris Rock and Will Smith get some support for what happened. I know that we all need some therapy after what happened. It was um, horrible to see. Horrible, horrible, and such a shame. Um, but that's all I want to say about that. Uh, okay, lots of people writing in. Uh, Jacob says, uh, the one about the Dr. Baker's book about cyberbullying sounds interesting, doesn't it? I think there's something for everyone there. Hi, Angela. So glad that you're here. And Jacob says he's against cyberbullying. I hope so. I think we all. Um, Parker says, did Betty White deserve a, a memoriam segment? I don't know. I think she did. Uh, Betty White did some films too, but she was primarily a television star as well. She was beloved. She was someone that I felt that her in memoriam was appropriate, but I felt that for people who were saying, well, Ed was more of a TV actor. I'm, I'm like, then are, are you saying that Betty didn't deserve, get over it. Like, I really just think there was room enough. There was time enough. Um, they wasted a whole lot of time on silly stuff instead of, things that I thought that mattered. Um, yes, uh, Parker says that Ed is listed on the In Memoriam on the website, which is why I say to you, I think it was deliberate that they left him out because they it wasn't that they forgot. He is listed on their website as one of the actors who died this year. So there was a decision made that he didn't make the cut. And I asked why, um, because it's inappropriate, absolutely inappropriate. I'm My feelings are hurt by it, but more than that, I am hurt for the family that, and I'm hurt for Ed, that he could work so hard, so tirelessly in his life for all kinds of people and do the level of work that he did 
and that a decision could be made that he is left out of that is just inappropriate. I'm emotional about it. I'm unapologetically emotional about it, but I'm not slapping anybody. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Um, all right, let's move off of that. Uh, shall we? Cause we have great things to talk about today. Wonderful things, in fact, to talk about and some hard things to talk about. So, uh, you know that we start off the show, uh, with on Mondays and Wednesdays with jargon of the day, we've been hitting some jargon that we've never done before because some of it is hard. And today, uh, you know, I'm going to get to the good stuff. You guys, we're going to, cause you're going to get, Oh, you're going to get to be with Dr. Jed Baker, but we're going to cover some hard stuff first. So we're covering terms that get thrown around a lot that we want to make sure that we're, we're talking about something in the right light and understanding. So our jargon term today, unbelievably, we've never done it before, the term developmentally delayed. And this is a term, it's, it's interesting that I didn't realize that this was, we decided this back in January, but I didn't realize it the other day when someone wrote in on the YouTube channel and they said, you know, what's the difference between um, somebody who's developmentally delayed and autism and, you know, um, and they wanted to know, I'm a person on the spectrum. Does that mean that I am developmentally delayed? So, hi, I am one. So let's let's talk about what the differences are and, and get this to a place where we can start to understand. You know, first we give you an actual definition. Then we sort of winnow it down into something that maybe we can get our heads around. And when appropriate, I make fun. I don't think there's anything to be made fun of today. So let's take a look at what the real definition of developmentally delayed is. And obviously, I, there are different, uh, but we we took uh, Yale Medicine as our our quote for the day. When a child's progress through predict uh, through predictable developmental phases slows, stops, or reverses, symptoms include slower than normal development of motor, cognition, social, and emotional skills. And treatment includes occupational therapy, speech therapy, and or physical therapy services. Now, this is what Yale said. We didn't change anything. Um, this is what their interpretation of that is. So let's, and you can take issue with it and you can go, oh my goodness, I think my, you know, this, I qualify or my child qualifies or whatever, and that brings up emotions. And I want to encourage you to breathe through those emotions. Let's, let's go to our working definition to really get at the question that I think a lot of you are asking is how does this differ from an autism diagnosis, right? So remember to keep breathing, be gentle. Uh, so developmental delay means the individual is delayed across many areas versus an autism diagnosis, which means the individual has delays in speech, social, and communication areas. And, and I, I chose to use the word delay here, but, you know, I think most of the textbooks with autism say has a deficit. Delay implies that you can, you know, that it's going to come later um, because I believe that that can be true in autism in many cases. Uh, but I think that you'll find in textbooks, they don't always address that. Uh, but anyway, an individual could have, uh, but by the way, it's the, so in autism, your delays are in speech, social and communication areas, along with repetitive and restrictive behaviors. So you can be developmentally delayed, but not have to always, you know, line up your cars when you play. You can, 
be developmentally delayed and not be have that like cycle of saying uh, a certain phrase over and over and over again, right? Um, and the, and the opposite is true that there are on both sides there are it's like that Venn diagram, right? There's like a circle here and a circle here. Now sometimes there is some stuff that overlaps. You can. Uh, as it says here, an individual could have both developmental delays and autism, but an ASD diagnosis doesn't automatically mean global developmental delays. So I, I, I think that there are very important distinctions there. Obviously, there are great many more nuances, but um, you know what we see a lot of times with autism is that the person has difficulty communicating in a social situation. They cannot communicate their needs but there is no cognitive delay that they can read Einstein and they can tell you all about Einstein. So we would not say that they're developmentally delayed, right? It's just that there are areas in which they are, there is a delay or a deficit, however you choose to, to look at that, that there are areas that they are struggling with and they're very specific with autism. Um, so whereas a developmental delay, we would see it kind of consistently across all of the development. Does that help you guys to make a little bit more sense? But obviously there are people on the spectrum who have an autism diagnosis who also have a diagnosis of being developmentally delayed. So those things can absolutely occur together, but it is not an if then Q logic thing. You can be on the spectrum and not have developmental delays, or you can be on the spectrum and have developmental delays. So hopefully that helps to put it into a light that is productive for you. So that <clears throat> if you or your child have a diagnosis of autism, like I think it's important that we know what it is we're working on and what we don't need to work on. I think all too often, you hear a lot in the autism community, people will say you always have to presume intelligence, right? Because I think that there is this predisposition for people to see someone, for instance, who's non-vocal and assume that they need to talk to them as if they can't understand difficult concepts. And often that is just not the case, right? So. It is important, though, to also acknowledge that there are people in the, in the, on the autism spectrum who additionally have de global developmental delays and need more support than just a person who is working on social skills. Uh, and, and it's important that we acknowledge these differences, not as a way of uh, labeling and pigeonholing someone, but of giving them help and support that is appropriate to the individual. So it's very hard for me when we make these diagnoses because it feels like we're putting people into cartons. I don't like that. I What I like is if the carton is labeled, here are some things that would help this individual. That's what I like. And that's what I want to get to as much as possible here on the show. Poppy, hello. We're saying good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Lucky for Poppy, she's missed most of the hard stuff this morning. <laughs> Poppy, we've already talked about all this stuff that's difficult. You've come at the good time. Uh, and Marsha, uh, and then on top of that, is it still correct that autism is a developmental disability? Um, you know, I, I think that it is still, uh, an, here's where we get dicey, right? 
because an autism spectrum disorder, um, I think that some people still refer to it as a developmental disability. I, I, I don't, I don't think that's entirely correct with how we think of it right now. Um, I think they, they deem it a neurological developmental disability to, to throw more craziness on the fire. Um, and I, but I want you to recognize that that's when it is the disorder that I think many, many more of us are starting to acknowledge that there is, when you have symptoms that don't allow you to do the things that are important to you, that then that quantifies and qualifies for a diagnosis of a disorder. But as you heard Dr. Grampiche say last week, if there are many people who have some aspect of, you know, being on the spectrum, but they're able to do their lives. And so they don't qualify for the disorder, but they have the neurological difference and that that is a different thing. So we could spend weeks talking about that. Um, oh, Ka, we're so thrilled that you're here. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. All right. And, and we have an expert that maybe can shed some light on this. He might have some things to say about this as well. We need to get on to our question of the day so that we can get our guests in here. So our question today, and you guys can answer if you will on whatever platform you're watching, what helps you to get through the tough stuff? And I think that if you would take a minute to share what helps you to get through the tough stuff, not only would it help you to remind you, yes, I do have a skill set and I do have the ability to take care of myself, but you know what it might happen? Someone else might see what you do and it may help them. That happens all the time. Uh, so I want to say what helps me to get through the tough stuff is to take action. That I literally do the serenity prayer and say to myself, what, you know, help me to understand what, what's within my purview, what is not within my purview, and to have the courage to do what is within my purview. So, you know, the serenity prayer says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So, some of the things that I find that are within my control is that I speak up when I need to. I plant my garden because watching seeds grow helps me to remember that to everything there is a season and that things change and that things grow and that there are always more possibilities. That really helps me. I don't know why. I write as an escape. Sometimes I write long, long letters where I say all the mad, mean things with no filter, and then I don't ever send those letters. I, I write it all down, and then I, I let go of it. Someday, I am, yes, at humor, Sanderson, thank you. I use humor a lot, too. Someday, I'm planning on doing a one-woman show where I read all of the letters that I have written over the years to people that I didn't send, but leave their names off of them so they won't know who it was written to. It would be shocking because it's like I go off on people. If I get mad, that's the thing that helps me to get through it. Gets me through. You know what it does? It clears the anger and gets me to the hurt and the fear, which is at the bottom of all of it, and then I can deal with it. But so what helps you, uh, 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 Parker says, good answer. Therapy helps. So does family and having friends help. Sanderson has humor. 
definitely better to laugh than to cry. You got to love the humor, even in the chaos. Yes, yes, yes. Poppy says, uh, knowledge, constantly learning how to help my son and fighting for my son. I love that. Uh, and I am one says, so why do people call people with autism slow or special needs? They love picking on us. And, and I am one, I, I, I would love to say that I know definitively, but I think sometimes people are so hurt inside themselves that their way of dealing with it is to hurt someone else. I don't understand it. I don't like it, but I think it's much more about them than it is the person that they're reaching out to hurt. I, I know that it hurts all the same, um, but I think that when people say something, it, it, I, I always think of it as a mirror that whoever they're talking to, they're talking to themselves. And so when somebody calls you a name, it's them calling themselves that. And you have the choice to just go, okay, um, and walk away because your opinion of yourself cannot come from them. You know what I mean? Uh, Liliana says, for me, prayer and faith. So right for everything, there is a season. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, okay, we always have a topic of the week. Let's go on. You guys can keep writing in because I do think it helps other people. When you're stuck, sometimes you're like, I don't know what to do to make myself feel better. You know, how nice to look at what other people do. So our topic this week is the past does not equal the future. That it is important to recognize, I, I think that all of us within the autism community, we carry a backpack with us, right? And in the backpack, we have all the old hurts. We have all the resentments. We have all the fears. We have everything in that backpack and we take it with us everywhere. And sometimes things happen now and we bring that perspective to it, right? And we go, well, the last time that a therapist canceled on me, you know, they ended up leaving. And so we get into the fear of, will this happen again? That's just one example, right? We have to be very careful that we are constantly moving forward. And that, yes, it's very hard to put that backpack down. And I don't ever tell anybody, oh, just put it down. It's so easy. It isn't easy. But when you can, be mindful. Ah, that's something in my pain backpack. I'm bringing my pain backpack into this and I don't have to. I can look and see that there are similarities here, but it's, it's not the same. I'm going to be mindful and I'm going to protect myself and my family but I don't have to react to everything as it was in the past, right? Uh, because I'll tell you what happens is, we talked about this last week. I said that I, uh, I you know, I have a monologue in the, the comedy show that I do called The Autism Monologues about the fact that having my son diagnosed with autism was a lot like being shoved out onto a bridge. A bridge that I didn't ask to be on, that I didn't know why it was there. I didn't know whose fault it was. Was it my fault? And I kept looking back at land going, how do I get back there? Right. But in the monologue, I talk about the fact that you have to start moving and walking and you have to start the process of dealing with what is. And that once you start to do that, you see that there are people who are coping and thriving, not just surviving, they're thriving and you meet fascinating people. If you stay, and we all know somebody who's doing this, if you stay on the beginning of the bridge and go, I didn't ask to be here, how do I get off? You know, why, why me? Woe is me? Then you don't get to see all the other things. And we, we can't get stuck there. 
we cannot get stuck there. We got to keep moving. Yeah. Uh, okay. Amanda says crying helps me. I just cry and then get over it. And I think Amanda, probably what it sounds like to me is that you cry and then you get back in action. I don't know that there's ever a possibility of being completely over all the things that we're talking about, right? But you cry and then you get back to, okay, what do I need to do? Because the feelings are still there. Yeah. Um, but the past does not equal the future. I'm, I'm giving you all that message of hope today that you too can get yourself into action and get to better days. It is possible. Anyway, uh, I hope so for all of you. And now we've gone too long. Uh, Dr. Jed Baker is here with us. As I said before, he is one of the favorite experts that I refer to here on the show. Uh, more than eight books. Uh, he is also the director of the Social Skills Training Project, which is an organization serving individuals with autism and social communication problems. He is a professional advisory board of the, uh, a lot of places, Autism Today, Answer, uh, YAI, I think, is that a Y-A-I, the Kelberman Central, and several other autism organizations. We talked about some of his books at the start of the show I particularly talk about here on the show, Overcoming Anxiety in Children and Teens. Uh, but I know you guys were shouting out at some of the books that you wanted to look at. Uh, for instance, No More Victims, Protecting Those with Autism from Cyberbullying, Internet Predators and Scams. And of course, we love, love, love all of his social skills training books. He's got a new book that's going to be coming out soon. We're going to talk to him about that. And of course, you guys all love No More Meltdowns, positive strategies for managing and preventing out of control behavior. Uh, really remarkable. Let's welcome uh, Dr. Jed Baker. Dr. Baker, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Shannon. You know, I was listening to you talk about, I, I don't want to re uh, recycle all of what you said, but I was listening to you talk about Ed Asner. And I don't know if you realize my father for years was president of AFTRA in New York City and, and uh, loved Ed Asner. And they did a lot of similar union work. I think Ed was originally president of SAG and AFTRA in New York and then nationally. And my father was president in, uh, in New York. And so um, always, also not always the most popular because was standing up for the rights of actors, including actors uh, with disabilities who back then were not being paid. The scale and the same kind of thing. So he was advocating for them as well. And left out, just horribly, horribly left out of the in memoriam last night. I'm just appalled. Uh, but thank you for, for, I did not know that that, that was who your father was. And, uh, but thank you for remembering Ed fondly because we loved him. <sighs> but we go, we go on. It's what Ed would want. Ed would want us to go on and talk about how to help kids on the spectrum which Absolutely. was very near and dear to his hearts. Uh, and I know it's near and dear to your heart. You've been working in this field for a really long time, and especially being an expert in dealing with challenging behavior, frustration, anxiety, and of course we mentioned social skills training. So talk to us a little bit about, like that seems like things that are not necessarily related, but you don't think so. Tell us why. Yeah, I've been I've been in that uh, field. I'm old now, Shannon, so I've been doing this a long time. But uh, you could see the gray hair. Um, yeah, I've I've been 
doing a lot of work on challenging behavior, which includes, you know, dealing with frustration or, you know, when people go inward with anxiety and shut down with depression, um, and also social skills training. And they all connect for me, really, because when, you know, when people are threatened, I, I often refer to it, maybe, you know, from the No More Meltdown book, I, I talk about Dr. Banner and the Incredible Hulk. You know, when people are threatened and the Hulk takes over and they're not always thinking logically, the Hulk can go uh, in an in a angry, rageful direction, um, uh, or it can go into a sort of anxiety, depression, and shutdown. And so we certainly want to think about how do we help with those kinds of issues. Part of that is social skills training, right? What's a better way to get your needs met? If, if we can have a little bit of Dr. Banner logical thinking, how do we solve problems rather than fight, flight, or freeze? You know, the Hulk has a limited repertoire, Hulk smash, Hulk run, Hulk hide. But how do we maybe, you know, solve problems? How do we gradually face our fears? Uh, how do we, um, you know, find a way to get help or take breaks when we're overwhelmed and frustrated so we're not throwing over desks or, or punching Chris Rock, you know? Um, and yeah. so how do we manage those kinds of things? Now, my current work has sort of, backs up from that, which is as I've been trying to implement these strategies for years, you know, we have to think about um, how do we maximize engagement for clients and for kids and for their families? You know, we don't do behavior plans to people. We do things with people. We collaborate. We, we do a client-centered approach where we're, we're working with people and their own desires and their own path and their own goals. And so, uh, I've done a lot of thinking, and I guess my newest book, which is a revision of my original social skills training book, is going to address a lot of this issue around motivation. How do we kind of win people over, understand really what their wants and needs are, help them be aware of their talents and their strengths, because that's what takes people places in life. It's not their challenges that take, peop play, you know, take people places, so that shouldn't be the entire focus. Challenges are a focus simply in terms of not letting them get in the way of your strengths. Um, so we need to help people develop that awareness of their talents so that they have hope. And that's the energy that fuels walking on the bridge, as you would say, continuing on. Yes, and I, I programming note, here in Los Angeles this morning, we are having torrential downpour rain. And so I'm micing, uh, I'm turning my mic off from time to time because if you're hearing a noise, it is literally the rain uh, that is just pelting my house right now. We're not back in our studio until next week, so uh, I apologize for the, the the noise. But it's not it's not a problem with your screen. It is uh, torrential torrential rain that is hitting our house right now. I I also uh, I love the the things that you say, Dr. Baker, and the way that you put things. I want you to talk a little bit about, because uh, this all goes hand in hand, your, uh, your last book, which was Overcoming Anxiety in Children and Teens, because I thought that your particular take on this was and is brilliant. This is a book that I recommend to absolutely everyone. I do, I do think it's notable to say that the entire book isn't just for people who are on the spectrum. It's for everyone but you do include a chapter in it that is specifically talking about individuals who uh, might be coming with a different perspective, for instance, on the spectrum. Talk to us a little bit about what is so revolutionary about that book. 
Well, I don't know if it's revolutionary, but I will tell you what my, my, I appreciate that. I will tell you my perspective. You know, we've known, uh, first of all, anxiety is for everybody. It's part of the human condition. You know, we just, we all, we have it. We have it for a reason, right? We're supposed to have some fears. And if a car is coming to hit us, uh, we need a, a sort of alarm system to kick in and get us out of there. And so we all have that. That's part of being human. And so it's not just for people on the spectrum. It's for everybody. And yes, I do have a chapter in the book um, particular to, say, students who have less language because we're going to teach folks a little differently um, for those with receptive language issues that we can't simply explain uh, and, and sort of give a rationale. Um, but um, there are plenty of people on the spectrum who are quite verbal and uh, plenty of people off the spectrum who are quite verbal and we can do a lot of explaining. So what that book covers is sort of the science of getting over, if you will, um, anxieties that aren't based on actual dangerous situations like getting hit by a car, but false alarms, if you will. And the treatment of choice for, for years has been some form of gradual exposure, gradually facing fears. And we know it works. We know it works if you, we used to have a term called systematic desensitization, which is where you pair relaxation with gradually facing the thing you're afraid of. And it turns out that can be very effective, but it's not necessarily having to pair it with relaxation. It's just if you face your fear, eventually, if it's really not a dangerous situation, you will learn to be less afraid of that situation. That's the science of dealing with fear um, and anxiety. The, the issue is, uh, how do you get people to do that, right? I mean, how do, I, how do you convince, I have a child now I'm working with who, you know, since the pandemic has not been back to school, um, uh, some school refusal. And it's been a very thorny situation, very challenging. And so we know gradually helping her to you know, get back into the class will, will be the treatment of choice. But the art of therapy is how do you sort of work with someone, especially when they're anxious, so they don't feel forced into something, but they begin to take it on themselves as a battle within that they want to, um, that, that they want to address. To have her own forebrain um, take over the sort of, uh, the, the, the Dr. Banner forebrain take over the Incredible Hulk brain begin to gradually face those fears. So a lot of the book are, um, are narratives about the different ways in which we approach students and their families to help uh, convince uh, and work with people to help them face their fears, that help them do that gradual exposure work. Yeah, I particularly love in it that you, I, I think what fired for me and all the circuits lit up was the understanding that because I used to teach English and I, I had ninth grade English and we would always teach them Romeo and Juliet. And the, and I it was explained to me early on, the reason why we teach Romeo and Juliet is because Romeo and Juliet are at that age where they don't have a perspective of love. They think that the way they feel right, right now today is the way they're going to feel every day for the rest of their life. And it's so huge and it's so overwhelming. They don't know that they're going to get over it. And so it has this tragic ending and that that's that age group, those ninth graders, that's exactly how they feel. They have no perspective of the way I feel right now is not the way I have to feel the rest of my life. And, and I felt like when I read your book um, about over, cause I have some anxiety that I have to deal with in life, but what I, what I read and, and it resonated was 
the first thing that we have to do is help them to want to work on it and respect their wishes in, in, and how they want to work on it. But, but if somebody feels like this is how I feel and it's how I'm always going to feel forever, then I don't want to work on it. Why would I want to work on it? I don't know that I could ever feel different. And I just felt that it was so compassionate, your approach, because it acknowledges the whole person, what they're feeling. And it doesn't, you know, say, oh, well, you're just so young, get over it. And, and you have to go back to the classroom. Um, so I thought that that was one of the great uh, things in your book, but you also brought up school. And, and I promised people that we were going to talk about this a little bit today, Dr. Baker, because I think a lot of people are up a lot of different trees right now this week, whether it's themselves or their kiddos. We, we're, we're going back to a world that isn't the world that we left two years ago. Everything feels strange. I'm hearing from people across the board that they feel exhausted that they don't know what the rules are anymore. And there's so much anxiety and angst. I think we saw that played out last night during the Oscars. Um, but especially for our kiddos going back to school, what kinds of things do you advocate helping them? And, and should the, you know, parents are forcing their kids to go. Are you saying they shouldn't force them and, and move a little slower? Well, let, let me let me back up and just say, right, COVID in two years plus has been, you know, um, uh, just rippled through every part of our society for all of us, for the, for the whole planet. And I have, you know, folks on the spectrum who I must say rather enjoyed it. Uh, it was an opportunity for them not to have to do some face-to-face -face interaction, which they, and, and, and they could stick more to... Uh, uh, interacting on the internet, and, and, and that can work for, ma for many people. And then there were others who were um, just, you know, tremendously depressed about uh, the disappointment and missing out on their programming, on opportunities to see favorite teachers or peers or other activities. Um, so, you know, people's reactions can go in diametrically opposed places. So I do have kids who are just um, loving going back to school now. Um, and then I have those who, like the young lady I was talking about, who are refusing to go back. And, um, and we don't want to, <laughs> there's a balancing act with people who are afraid to do something that ultimately isn't necessarily dangerous for them to do, right? Like returning to school, um, if we do it in the, in, in the right, in the safe way. Um, when people are anxious, we can't force them to do things because it will create anxiety. But we also can't make it so easy for them to continue to avoid. So the wonderful reinforcement uh, and the relief you get of not having to have that panicky feeling is so reinforcing that you decide never to go back because then they're going to miss out on maybe some very good experiences. So all of us parents are always doing this balancing act. How do we stay in an encouraging place where we're not shoving people, physically dragging them into school, but we're working in this constant encouraging way to get them to want to own a piece of trying to face their own fears. So part of what I do in the book, part of what I'm doing with my clients now with school refusal is educating them about their alarm system and why they're having this panic attack and what will happen if they're, you know, face that fear for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. You talked about 
um, uh, just uh, a moment ago, uh, not looking at things as permanent, you know, but having a sense that this an anxiety is one of these things that is, is it ebbs and flows like a wave. And if people can um, be able to understand they're going to have this tremendous surge of anxiety, and if they don't run away when that happens from the situation, but they stay with it, it eventually comes down, and then lo and behold, it's not as bad as they thought. Um, and so it's trying to educate people enough that they want to try to do that for themselves. And look, and sometimes we have to use powerful incentives too. I mean, I'm not opposed to a really nice uh, fudge cupcake as a reward for taking on the, the, you know, the step on the fear ladder that you were willing to do today, if that helps you. Um, but I also, we've got to kind of work with parents to not always give in immediately to the, I'm not going, I'm not going, and sort of say, I hear it, I know it's that panic. That's what Dr. Baker was talking about, that alarm system. But let's just sit with it for a little bit. We can sit in the car here. Let's see if it passes. Let's see if we can do one little uh, piece of the fear ladder today. Because if we run home as soon as, I'm not going, well, then they feel great that they relieved it and we don't get anywhere. So we've got to sort of create the atmosphere. I, I don't know if I talked about it in the book, but, you know, my daughter, Shannon, certainly had a lot of anxiety. Um, and part of that social anxiety, too, often goes along with some of the, um, what we see with school refusal and things like that. But early on, I remember she just wouldn't go to gymnastic birthday parties. Uh, and, you know, she was a little like Lucille Ball, in a sense. She just was a little, she was falling a lot. She wasn't going to be the greatest sort of gymnast. That's not her, that's not her thing. Um, she happens to be one of the sweetest, most empathic and kindest uh, and funny young ladies I know. But she wasn't going to be a gymnast. And so she had a lot of anxiety about, at a certain you know, time in her life, every girl's birthday party was a gymnastic birthday party. And so she was, I'm not going, I'm not going. And I knew if she didn't go, she would not, you know, she was going to miss out on a social opportunity. But I also knew that she was really uncomfortable with the gymnastic stuff. So I said, well, gradual exposure. You know, I try to educate her as to the fear kind of thing and say, uh, what's the middle road, road here? You know, why don't we go? And you don't have to participate. I'll sit with you. We'll watch. And if you're comfortable doing something, you can. If you don't want to, we don't have to. And we would get there. Uh, and she might, you know, not want to go. But I would try to convince her that, hey, there's an opportunity and they're going to have pizza afterwards and then you're going to hang out and play and all that. So I'd get her there. She'd sit and she would just watch. And then after a while, she'd sort of see the routine of what they were doing enough where she felt like she maybe she could try it. But she wasn't quite there yet. So I had some lollipops in hand. I said, oh, if you want to try that, I have a lollipop for you. You know, you get, and, and then she would want to, she would be the last to leave the party. You know, eventually she would stay. And there's little snippets of that that happen to this day. She's in college now. And she's, you know, not always wanting to be the one person to speak up in class, depending on the class and what the content is. And we talk through it, and it's the, it's the same stuff, but she's also getting on airplanes, traveling half around the world to, you know, go to a college and live far away from us. So she's really come out of her shell. And there's research, you know, Jerome Kagan did this research many years ago that, you know, you can be born with a shy, uh, slow to warm up temperament. Those kinds of personality traits can be seen right at birth, uh, in fact. Often nurses are able to, who are experienced, are able to sort of 
categorize this is a famous uh, uh, work by Thomas and Chess. They, they looked at these categorizations of nurses and then tracked kids 20 years later. And some of these personality characteristics were pretty stable. But slow to warm up kids, anxious kids. Their developmental course can be swayed by parents who stay in that encouraging place to just gently keep pushing them out a little bit. Not forceful, because if you force someone who's anxious, you're just going to get more anxiety. There's more threat, and you retreat into a power struggle. But this sort of gentle kind of educational approach where they want to take on facing the fears themselves. So you don't give up. You stay on the bridge. You keep taking baby steps on the bridge. But you mentioned before that there's a chapter in your book talking about when someone does not have the, the communication um, where you're, for instance, if, you're, if, if it's somebody who is a little bit more impacted and explaining to them, it's got to be a little bit more difficult. How do you work with those individuals? So, you know, part of the, um, part of the theme that we're, we're talking about is taking the child's perspective. So just because they may not have the same receptive language or expressive language doesn't mean we can't try our best to take their perspective. And so I have a kid who's afraid of going into the lunchroom perhaps for whatever, even if it's a quiet lunchroom, you know, we, and, and we dealt with the sensory issues. And so maybe they have less language. We can't convince them of their alarm system and why they should try to take it on and et cetera. But what we could do is understand that it's going to be too much to drag them into the lunchroom. We can't force people to do stuff, but we could walk by the, we could walk by the lunchroom and give them a reward, uh, uh, their favorite reward. We could walk by and put our toe right into the, you know, through the doorway and give them a reward. We could walk in with a timer, a visual timer, and then give them a reward. And so they're getting that gradual exposure in a way that isn't, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a horrid and, and forceful, but is gradual and sensitive and respectful. And they're beginning to learn that I can be in this space and nothing, nothing really bad happens. And, and an interesting point I'll make about this. Um, you know, I, my background was in a somewhat of a behavioral program, and so sometimes behavioral folks get mad at me when I say this, because um, I've had situations, you know, where kids were tantruming and yelling, and they said, well, you can't reward them when that's happening. And so there are certain situations where I, I, I'm going to reward them. I'll give you an example. A kid who was just very inflexible about what seat he could sit in in a classroom. And, um, and if we could give him his own seat, it would be great. But there were certain classes he went to that switched, and we couldn't always do that. And so what we did is we rewarded him when he wasn't in necessarily the seat he, ha he felt like he had to be in. And he might have been upset with that or crying, and maybe the behaviorist would have come in and said, well, you can't reward him while he's crying and tantruming. He said, no, we're rewarding him for just the experience of not being in there. We're saying to him, you know, sometimes life sucks. You can't be in this seat, but I'll try to make it better. I'll give you something you really want, make you happy. So if you can't have this, you can't have that. And slowly but surely, through exposure and the experience of being rewarded, he was able to be in other seats sometimes and able to do other things. So uh, I think what I'm telling you for less verbal kids is we still do gradual exposure. Um, and we do it in a way that, you know, 
is tolerable for them. They can't tell us, this is too much for me. Like my girl I'm working with now, she can tell me, that's a 10 out of 10, Dr. Baker. I can't do that today. Okay, but maybe the less verbal kid can't tell me, but their behavior tells me. Yes. I can see how much agitation. And so I know how far to go and maybe go a little further the next day with a reward and a little further the next day. I got to say, I got to tell on you a little bit because you probably don't remember this, but the first time that I ever met you was on a day that was not my best parenting day. I had come to Texas. You were there doing a Future Horizons um, conference and Temple Grandin was there and Kara Kaczynski and you were there and we had made an arrangement where you were up. It was in a church. and that, cause I, remember I, I remember it. No, I remember oh, being in the... It, there was there were clothes all around. And we're, we're it was all back. choir robes. Yeah, um, exactly. And so we were there with my producer, and we had done a short interview with Temple Grandin. So of course I was nervous about that. Um, and I I think I, I think that we did then an interview with Kara Kaczynski, the Pocket OT, and then you were the last person before we were going to jump in the car with Temple Grandin and do. We did a video with her in the car that got a lot of attention. Um, but my, what people don't know is that my son was with me the entire time. He was probably 11, I want to say, and his little timer, he had been so good while we were interviewing Temple. He'd been so good while we were interviewing Kara. But by the time we had you in the room, his timer had gone off. He was done. He was starting to engage in vocal stereotomy and he was interrupting and he was like, I want to go. I want to have lunch. And I was like, can you just give me five more minutes? I want to interview the doctor. And I was like, basically, you know, all but I might even have like been rude to him and said, you know, go in the corner and entertain yourself and be quiet for a minute. And Dr. Baker was like, well, let's just stop for a minute. <laughs> and and you were just like this soul of calm and understanding and you stopped and you talked to him and you talked to me and you were like, let's just honor what's happening right here before he got to a meltdown, which I think was imminent. And before I got to a meltdown, which was imminent. And you just worked your magic with the two of us and had this wonderful conversation with my son that he still remembers. And I remember going, okay, Okay, because you you were just you had either just come off the stage or were going on the stage. You had your own stuff going on, and I always say you're the real deal because you stopped everything to like deal with what was going on for my son when I was unwilling to do that. You, sir, are pretty fabulous. Well, you're very you're very kind to say that. I I didn't uh, remember that exact thing, but uh, it's nice to hear that I did something right for once. You know. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I, um, that's an interesting story because I certainly have stories early in my career where, you know, somebody like a kid was late for a session and I had sessions back to back, you know, and he hadn't eaten and they had come. And I remember trying to sort of push to do the session anyway. And it was a disaster. And I sort of learned my lesson, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy, like certain things have to come. If somebody's hungry, tired, ill, they're in pain, they have GERD, they have an ear infection, you know, you're going to have to address some things. It's not the time to, you know, take the SATs. Right, yeah. right. But I loved, I'm going to love you forever for that day. I want to get to, Jacob asked the question, this is a question for yeah. Dr. Baker, what is it that fuels your passion for writing? 
Is it from studying or are there any experiences? I'm just randomly curious to know, he says. Well, okay, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Um, so first of all, one of the things I learned is it's not worth writing unless you already have something you want to say. <laughs> I've been asked to write books sometimes before where I didn't have something to say, and that's really hard. But if, I, if I'm doing lectures on challenging behaviors and social skills, and I'm trying to communicate already to people some concepts, now I have something to write about, and writing is a, is a place to do it sort of with some time to think about what you want to say um, and then can reach a, a large group of people. But Jacob, you know, maybe one of the most important things that happened to me, um, I will say that I think I probably was dyslexic early on in my life. And I don't know if I would have been diagnosed. Back then, when I was in New York City, in, in, in the schools that I went to, we didn't have to read War and Peace in kindergarten. But now that you're expected to fully read in kindergarten. And so when I was, I had pretty good comprehension, so I could figure out what Dick, Jane, and Spot were all about in my picture books in kindergarten and first grade. So I could pretend I was reading, even if I wasn't reading all the pages. But I was certainly aware that other people were speed reading much faster than I was. And, you know, later I discovered from my father that his brother was very uh, dyslexic and, um, and, and eventually overcame it and became a scientist and, and you know, working in uh, the University of Washington. And, I, um, and so early on, I was really into science and math, and just reading and writing was not my thing. I had a love of knowledge, and I just liked to consume information, but not particularly through reading. Um, but my brain must have compensated at some point, and I figured out how to get up to speed uh, enough with reading uh, and, in, and writing, but didn't feel particularly good at it. Um, and I had a teacher, maybe in 11th grade, who said, you know, Jed, you know, you happen to be a very creative and talented writer. It was the first time I'd heard anything positive said about anything that I wrote. And that moment, Jacob, was a moment where I then thought, oh, okay, well, like, I have a lot to say. <laughs> Maybe I could say it through writing. Um, and I say that to you, Jacob, because, you know, we talked about motivation. None of this work that we're doing means anything unless you can get people motivated and un uh, engaged. And I like to reflect on the people in my life who motivated me, also the people who did the opposite. I had teachers who said sometimes horrible things, and, and that, you know, <laughs> had, its, had other effects. Um, you know, sometimes actually it, it, it was not bad for me, too, because I would get mad and I would work harder to prove they were wrong. Um, so I, I think sometimes we need other people to believe in us more than we believe in us in the beginning. And I, I hope, Jacob, you have people like that in your life who can see the potential for things that you might want to do even when you don't yet see it. There you go. Uh, we're almost out of time here, and we haven't really talked about You've got a new book that you're working on, and I don't know when it comes out. It is not out yet. What's the new book? Well, the new book is a revision of my original social skills training book or manual. Um, and um, 
and, and so it, it takes account of some things that have happened in the so 20 years or, or, or so since I've revised it. A lot of those skill lessons are still quite useful, still quite good, but I used to teach social skills, and now I like to say I teach people because uh, we, we used to be very sort of concerned about how, what's the best way to teach these skills, you know. And then it was really, it's like, well, what does this person need? How do we target what's really relevant for that individual? How do we motivate them to sort of, you know, be engaged in a collaborative way? What's important to them? We can't teach all social skills. And that's the problem, right? Everything is social. I often ask this question when I do seminars, you know, is doing a math problem social? And some people will say no. I said, well, if somebody sees you do it, you get it right, and they're impressed, or you're the one who's telling the teacher that you did it right, and now you're kind of bragging, that it has a social impact. Everything can be social, everything. And so you can't teach everything. You've got to figure out strengths and talents. What's relevant for them to learn? What are they, you know, what's happening too much or too little of that might be getting in the way of their talents? Focus on that. And we have to think about, too, we don't just teach a new skill every week. You know, I'm a drummer, too, Shannon, and I'm, I'm a musician, and I, I, don't, I don't like listen, you know, working on a, a new song every week. I mean, I will, or at least lots of songs every week. The way you do it is you play the same songs over and over again until you've got, really, you know, a catalog that you can play. And that's the way social skills are, too. We don't want to just be worried about teaching a curriculum. It's like, what's relevant for you? Well, that's the thing we're going to sort of practice, work on, and then we're going to have a cue, a reminder. In music, you know what that is? That's my sheet music. It's a visual cue to remind me of the sounds. And, and so we do the same with social skills. You know, we need a way to cue people, and it can't be a cue of 75 different skills. A small subset of things that are relevant for you on a daily basis to help you remember, you know, I, I have that it. too. Yeah, I love that. So, when will is that book available for pre-sale now? It is not available. I'm working on it actually. Okay, I'm working. Okay. I'm working on it. The social skill training book is still available, but the uh, revision is, is is something I'm working on now. We'll add some skills on social media and other things because back when I wrote that, you know, people weren't communicating as much as they are now you know, in, in the internet world. And, and so we certainly want to talk about important skills for managing that world. And Traven is putting up um, some links on the screen, uh, jedbaker.com, where you can go and see all of the books. You can go to Amazon, go to his author page on Amazon um, to see all of the books. And uh, they, you can order the books through Amazon or you can go to Future Horizons and and order books i encourage people when they start having conferences again where which is where i met dr baker in person for the first time you should go to one of those you can buy all of dr baker's books there that's where i got them um but look at right now on the screen it says social skills training project.com is there any place else you'd like to send them dr baker um, well, so the the my future horizon set up Jed Baker, just my name, JedBaker.com as well, and so all the books are up there too. Uh, and if they go to Amazon, there's an Amazon author page, which is interesting because besides the books, there's some little video clips that might be useful and interesting to folks there. Things like, you know, developing peer programs to you know make sure that we're not just teaching people to fit in, but we're also reaching out and creating an accepting community. 
Dr. Baker, I adore you, um, and I apologize. Well, it's, it's I'm just mutual. the biggest fan. <laughs> it's mutual, Shannon. I'm 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 loving your your Facebook post too about all the movies because during the pandemic we all needed yeah. you to tell us <laughs> how do we what am I doing when I can't go outside or go someplace? And so I really appreciate uh, all that you're doing in the autism that, world and in the and in the entertainment world too. That makes my day. That I'm continue. I normally I only do it during the Oscar season, but I've. I've gotten so many, um, so much positive reinforcement for it. I'm going to continue it, and and I like it made my day the other day when you said you liked the reviews. I was like, no way, Dr. Jed oh, Baker likes my movie reviews. Um, that's a reason to get up in the morning, uh, because you have been a, a light in an, a, a shining light, a beacon of hope in an area that where where we all need it. So I appreciate you so much. I, I hope you'll come back when the new social skills book is done because we would love to have you come back and talk more. Sure, I would I'd be happy to. After that kind of comment, you know, I'll be there every day. What, when All right, are we, well, when are we talking tomorrow. Should don't we? don't say that because I will have you back here tomorrow. Uh, can I also tell? Because we're we're way past time, you guys. We've gone too long, but we do that when we have someone fabulous like this. I do want to say that we're back tomorrow, and Dr. Doreen Grampichet is on tomorrow, so that'll be super fun. You guys can write in your questions for Ask Dr. Doreen, and if we could get Dr. Baker, I'm sure she would love to have you too. Uh, so, but we will bring bring him back. We have to sign off now because we've gone over our time, but. I hope you'll check out Dr. Baker's books because I think you'll find, like me, they are absolutely amazing and light up all the circuits in your brain. You'll go, aha, I get it. So Dr. Baker, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Shannon. Be well. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.